Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for joining our webcast today. As you know, the Association of Value-Based Cancer Care is responsible for information and dialogue in our ecosystem across all stakeholder groups. This ensures that patients will win on access and quality. We need to constantly improve and change our tactics and our deliverables in cancer care. This is why we hold these webcasts. This is why you're dialing in. We have key opinion leaders, the influencers, the important decision makers who are driving change in our ecosystem. Please join us, participate, ask questions, and offer your voice too. It's hugely important. So thank you for joining. We look forward to participating with you more. Stay safe. Thank you. So Elizabeth, today I thought, again, unbelievable job of conveying the patient's face so many different issues when they're aware that they have cancer. I think I commented, I always felt that advocacy was you know, the last mile, which is the toughest to get funding and get assistance for not just drugs, but many different aspects of their care. The first mile is also important, you know, dealing with the uncertainty of, can I afford care? Can I go for screening? You know, I know that it's dear to your heart, the patient's the center of everything. With all the pending changes, um, and drug benefits and you know what payers do and employers buy these programs by the way these benefit programs you know cancer doesn't fit one size fits all in a benefit structure and i know there's a lot of policy updates and things coming out of washington and stuff but you know what's kind of keeping you up at night from a policy perspective negative activities unintended consequences of what we're seeing out there that's impacting not just covid but care in general. Sure. Thanks, Bert. Um, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I think in a normal time, people mm -hmm. aren't expecting to get cancer and the vast majority of people cannot afford to have cancer. And so we heard on the webinar today that even a $300 gift card can be a huge boon to someone to get them a meal on their table, to put gas in their car, to pay their rent. So we know that out-of-pocket costs are extraordinary for many patients and the healthcare system has not been patient-centered enough to make sure that we are taking good care of patients, getting them the medications that they need, the resources and services that they need. So as you mentioned, patient advocacy organizations exist in order to advocate for the needs of patients. And that's what we do every day. We exist because the healthcare system is not working as well as it should for patients. Again, in a normal time, a non-COVID time, we are focused on things like patient access to the medications, the services, the resources that they need. We're focused on making sure that patients can engage in a shared decision-making process with their physician and their loved ones, really making sure that the healthcare system hears the voice of the patient and understands what they need and want. But you layer on top of that a COVID pandemic and sort of everything has gone out the window. And so we're seeing lots of policy changes that are concerning for patients. And one of the things that you and I have mentioned is this concept mm -hmm. of copay accumulators. So as patients are utilizing these copay cards to access the medications that they need, if the cost of the copay card is not going towards their out-of-pocket maximum or their deductibles, and let's say in April or May, patients get to the pharmacy counter and they're told that they have to pay a huge amount out-of-pocket, that's not a patient-centered policy, right? And so there are tons of actors in the healthcare system 
who are making money, who are providing resources and services. But at the end of the day, the patient cannot be put in the middle, right? The patient cannot be the one made to suffer if one sure. side of the house is arguing with another side of the house. So we really need to do a better job at taking good care of patients. Another issue that we've been talking about quite a bit lately is this concept of home infusion. And we mentioned this on the webinar today. When we started to think about how to provide cancer care within the home, we all immediately from the patient community thought, oh gosh, how could we do that safely and effectively? But as time has gone on and we're sitting here in July, as time has gone on and we're seeing the pandemic not lifting, we're going to have to figure this out because a lot of patients are not going to be able to go into the hospital. And so the cancer support community, we developed guidelines for home infusion. So there are ways to figure this out. There are ways to provide telehealth in a way that makes sense for patients and allows them to stay safe at home and to meet them where they are. So those are just a few examples of things that are going on right now. But as you mentioned, patients should absolutely be at the center of everything that we do. Now, let's go, go back to the copay accumulator. Pharmacies are going to be required, according to the PBMs that manage these benefits, to report all the copay assistance money for that patient. So the requirement now is going to be to fill those prescriptions to stay in the network. Pharmacies need to report they got a $50 copay assistance card or 20, which makes all the difference between someone taking their pill or not. That money will then be deducted from their copays or added back into obviously as a deduction from their copay accumulator so if i had a 500 dollars copay and i got a 50 dollars prescription it looks like i paid 50 dollars toward my 500 dollars deductible they're going to re-add that 50 dollars so i now still have a 500 dollars deductible it just runs so contrary so what we're trying to do is to help patients. And you know, the pharmaceutical manufacturers in philanthropy uh, donate all this money to help patients. And without it, I know that uh, when I ran my old company, Uncle 360, 45% of patients would have never been on their oral medications without copay assistance from foundations like Cancer Cares and PAN and others. I think Benefit reform really needs to be addressed in this ne next session. Uh, the other big issue is this uh, new idea that white boxing is a great idea. Again, the PBMs through their verticals want to deliver the chemo, the cutruders and whatever other products to the hospital or the treatment site. And now Providence control over the drug, delays in drugs will happen. Again, we're putting patients in this fight and stuck between this tension for control over the, the margin on drugs. What do we need to do as an industry to pull together to you know, really raise this with the policymakers and the legislators so we can get patients out of the middle of this fight? Because that's ultimately, it's an economic battle and who suffers? The patient. That's right. Well, I think the most important thing and something that the healthcare system is historically terrible at is the concept of transparency. We do not have transparent billing systems. If you want, it's not like buying a car, right? There's this concept in economics of moral hazard. And that means that if you are looking to buy a car, you can make decisions based on how much you're going to pay out of pocket, right? So if you want leather seats, you're making that decision that those leather seats might cost you more. If you want, you know, if you want a Mercedes, 
you know how much that Mercedes costs versus a Toyota, which is why I have a Toyota in the parking garage right now, right? Because I know how much I'm going to pay out of pocket and I know what that means to my life. And so this concept of moral hazard, especially for insured individuals, means that in healthcare, they don't know. You don't know what you're going to pay out of pocket. If I were diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, I would be terrified of the out of pocket. And I have good insurance, right? I'm extraordinarily fortunate. And so this concept of transparency is incredibly important, especially when you're talking about things like you mentioned, Bert, benefit managers. Ask the average person what a benefit manager is. No clue, right? Mm -hmm. Ask the average person to say what a deductible, a premium, coinsurance is. They don't know, right? And so that's why patient advocacy organizations are working to educate folks. But these incredibly complex policy issues that I have to sit down, you know, when CMS comes out with a new rule that implicates copay accumulators, I have to sit down for days, weeks at a time, work with my staff to sort through what that means. And I've been working in policy for 15 years. The average patient doesn't have the time, doesn't have the information to work through some of these things. And so when I say transparency, I really mean it. Helping patients to understand what's going on, providing information to them in a way that they can absorb and understand. And at the end of the day, it's incredibly frustrating. And it, you know, the, the answer is just stop putting patients in the middle. They've become kind of the raw meat in the fight to say, well, if we can push patients to complain about this or that. But at the end of the day, they're struggling with high out-of-pocket costs. They're struggling with insurance designs that create more out of their own pocket. And so it's incredibly frustrating. I don't have the policy answers. If I did, I would probably be in Congress right now, but I don't. So I'm working every day to sort through this and figure out how we can provide patients with the best information and then advocate at the regulatory and legislative level to make sure that patients are not put in the middle. And ABBCC will have a very timely webcast in the next several weeks as Washington announces some new policies around benefit design other things. And some of it is actually sounds very good that um, value-based cancer contracts or financial discounts or whatever those exchanges are potentially might not be included in the calculation of the ASP, the average selling price. So um, there could be some great opportunity. I mean, so one of the things that kind of also I feel irks me is that nurses play such a big role or advocates in cancer care. I'm sure the physician writes a care plan, nurse manages it. But you know, telehealth reimbursement only covers physician services, not the care team services. So what are your thoughts on that? And what do we have to do to kind of fix the system? Because, you know, look, you hear the stories. Let's just face it, Elizabeth, docs are busy. They you get five minutes with them and they're gone. See you next time. And, you know, maybe some spend some more time, but they don't have the time, let's be honest. Uh, not that they don't want to. You know, it's really the nursing and the advocates who carry the load 95% of the other time or needs that they have. So how do we fix this system? Yeah, it's a great question. And we put too much of the onus on physicians, to be quite honest. Like you said, they're seeing many, many patients a day and they have a team for a reason. And so I'll also answer this in my role, my education and background as a social worker, right? So just like nurses, we work in the healthcare system. We're not receiving the same kind of reimbursement for the most part. Patient navigators are another great example of this, patient and nurse navigators who are really providing the services when a patient needs to sit down and have conversations with someone that they have ample time with, that they can trust, that they have a relationship 
relationship with, I would argue more often than not, it's the nurse, the navigator, the social worker, somebody who can really answer their questions. And so it's a great question, Bert, in terms of reimbursement. I think that as we look at value-based care, which you brought up and which the association is entirely based upon, we really need to think about what does that word value mean to patients? Is it what our physician tells us it should mean? Is it what an organization tells us it should mean? Or are we really listening to patients? And if patients are spending time with the nurses, the navigators, the social workers, we need to rethink what that looks like. You know, we're moving out of this fee-for-service system into a system which will bundle care, which will look at outcomes rather than services provided. And I would argue that those professions that we talked about, the nurses, the navigators, the social workers, others that are providing those wraparound services are integral. They are not value-added, they are integral, and we need to think about that in reimbursement structures. I totally agree with that. You know, one of the um, programs, I don't know if you want to call it a program, initiative at Aon, the Academy of Oncology Nurse Navigators, is to um, be able to track I produce a white paper, I think it's a committee that works on this, so maybe you can help me because I know you're involved. In coming up with the value of these interventions. Look, if a nurse can get the patient on the drug and they get a positive outcome and can keep them compliant, there's huge benefit to the insurer, not only the patient, but you know, let's go back to the economics, which whenever they say it's not about the money, it's all about the money. So I'm kind of I agree with you on that. So there's huge benefits, economic, besides quality and derivative quality efforts that patients derive. Where's Aon and tracking that and putting out a guidance on this? You know, the, all these interventions have huge economic value. It costs money to do them. Could that be something that could help us find ways to support reimbursement? And how do we bring that to the policymakers? Absolutely. I think at the end of the day, it's all about ROI, right? We've seen through our work with AONN and with various navigation initiatives that navigators, nurse navigators, and others have to prove their worth each and every day, right? We pay them a salary, and I'm looking at some study data right now that show that more often than not, it's coming from grants. It's not coming from the administrative budget. And we really need to flip that around because we can't depend solely on a grant system to fund navigation. We really need to focus on hard baking it into the administrative budget. AONN is really leading the way in terms of figuring out acuity, you know, how patient navigators, nurse navigators are working with patients who have seemingly intractable problems, patients who have a ton on their plate, dealing with social determinants of health, dealing with a variety of different things, and what is the value that navigators bring to the table. So I think that ROI is extraordinarily important. I'm working with AONN and a variety of other sort of navigator advocacy organizations to say, what is the ROI of navigation? What do we bring to the table? Because it is not value added. It is absolutely integral to the functioning of the cancer care system and to make sure that patient outcomes are as good as possible. One of the last issues I think we would probably want to touch on today is, you know, the COVID and this, we see what's going on in the rest of the country. We know it's going to be around for a long time. What do you think, uh, you know, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? What lessons learned have we applied in, especially in the advocacy area? Yeah, the light at the end of the tunnel, I think, in the most practical sense is the vaccine, right? We're all waiting around to see when the vaccine will be here. But I was watching an excellent documentary on this, and it's not just about finding the vaccine. It's also about having enough medical-grade glass to produce the vaccine. We're going to need about a billion doses. 
So wow. I think it's incredibly important to, in order to get herd immunity, we'll need a billion doses. And that's going to take time. Even if we found the vaccine tomorrow, so it's going to take time to get out into the years. world. Exactly. Well, it's not, not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen next year, right? And so we, we all talk about going back to work and getting back to life as usual. And, you know, I think for better or worse, there is no more life as usual. We've, we talk about the new normal for cancer patients, and we have to get accustomed to that new normal for all of us. And so I think, you know, what does that mean? It really incorporates some of the issues that we talked about today, Bert. Home infusion, right? If we can, if we can create a home infusion system where patients who are able to safely get infusions or injections at home, and they don't have to go pay for parking, they don't have to go get, you know, in DC, getting on a metro when you're sick and immunocompromised is not something you want to do. Teletherapy, telehealth, telemedicine. If patients can appropriately and easily access telemedicine, let's keep it. Right? We're figuring out these things that work, and I'm, I'm amazed that we went from 1980 telemedicine to 2020 telemedicine overnight. We've been told for years that there are policy barriers, there are reasons that we cannot do telemedicine, and we showed overnight that that's simply not true. Well, they so deregulated think, it. That's, ex- that's what that's, opened up the doors. That's right. So I think asking patients what they want, and for those who want to come back in the clinic, great. For those who want to stay home and do teletherapy, great. I think back to a colleague of mine who had a friend who was in a clinical trial, and he was traveling four hours to go to this clinical trial. And she went to help him get to the clinical trial, and they drove the four hours to the NCI-designated cancer center. And when they got there, the nurse said, okay, we're going to take your blood, we're going to check your vitals. And they did that, and then they said, okay, that's all for today, go home. Why couldn't he go to a local clinic and have his blood drawn and have the results sent four hours away? Why did he have to go to the cancer center four hours away? Those are the types of questions we're starting to grapple with as we're dealing with this pandemic. And I hope that those are the types of things that we can overcome. And those are the types of things that could be here to stay. So I'm excited about the potential to have innovative, flexible answers to some of these tough questions. And organizations like mine, the cancer support community, we are pivoting to provide online services. All of our affiliates are providing online support groups. You can talk to a social worker, our cooking, nutrition, yoga, things that you know people one day will get back in and go in person, but some people may not be able to go in person. Some people may not wish to go in person. And so I think a lot of these more technologically savvy services are here to stay, and I'm excited right. about that. Yeah, so I would um, particularly call out telehealth, digital health tools including, you know, remote blood, you know, phlebotomy to be able to do that, you know, the day before at home and be able to get that result. You know, I know that uh, there's a great program at Rutgers Cancer Center with the digital health program. It's a typical example. You have 2,000 patients and, you know, let's just say 15 or 20% are in trouble every day. Well, you have to call 2,000 patients to find the 400, if that's your census. And of course, it's a huge effort, right? Just think of the you know, time and the nursing too. But these technologies are, you know, communication tools for patients, real patient assessments are helping those nurses find particular at-risk patients today and be able to intervene. So, you know, I'm very hopeful. I know the companies, I think like GOMO Health and some others are out there doing that. There's plenty of these technology companies. Look, more to come. So I just want to thank you for today, hearing some of the patients' stories, the trials and tribulations, you know, the tailwinds, headwinds, what's really going on out there was usually important. And your panel was great. I always say a great moderator 
is really a, a function of the panelists, but uh, you are a great moderator. Well, thank regardless. you. So, <laughs> and they're I, a great uh, panel. So we're, we'll be excited to do it again one day. And I appreciate you asking us to do it, Bert. All right. Well, keep carrying the flag, carrying the charge. Uh, stay safe out there. And thanks for joining again today in this discussion. Very important one. Thank you. Well, gee, that was just great today. And thank you for joining. Thank you to our faculty and our panelists. As usual, great content and the sharing of information, usually important if we are going to improve access and the quality care that we're responsible for delivering along with change in this ecosystem. Like today, there'll be other and future webcasts. We cover all topics and all stakeholders. Stay tuned. Also, we post this on our website. Very important that you can dial down and share with your colleagues. So we encourage you to do that. Additionally, if any of you have any comments, send them in through our website. If anyone would like to participate in speaking or has some other ideas, please share them with us. That's our mission. Thank you for joining. Talk again.